very warm welcome to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale. The Posterity Podcast is brought to you by the Limerick Post, working in association with Limerick City Community Radio. Over the coming weeks and months, I will introduce you to a diverse range of voices from across many sectors in Limerick society. Some you'll know, others maybe not so much. I hope this podcast will capture the voices of those who see Limerick as home. I hope to get an understanding of what makes them tick and to discover their hopes and dreams for Limerick at a time when so much opportunity is in our grasp. The official definition of posterity relates to all future generations of people. These people of the future could be your children, your grandchildren or great-grandchildren, or any people born after you. So every decision we make today, be it by those in power, in business circles, or in community development, will affect the lives of those coming behind us. This podcast will tell people stories, capture their voices for posterity, and delve into the ideas, ambition, and hopes that they have as we prepare for and sow the seeds for the limerick of tomorrow. I hope you join me on this journey. I hope you enjoy listening to the stories you hear. And most of all, I hope some of what you hear will inspire you. Do get in contact with me if you have any suggestions for future guests, questions I might ask, or just general feedback on the show. I'm joined in studio by a man who, 60 years ago, arrived in Limerick for the first time as a young member of Ungarda Siakana. A decade later, in September 1970, he embarked on a new journey, moving into the world of auctioneering at a key time in the development of Limerick City and County. As commercial property director of the family business Rooney Auctioneers, Pat Carney has been a key player in Limerick's journey over the past five decades. In 2020, he was honoured by Limerick City and County Council for his commitment to the development of business and growth of residential areas in Limerick and for his support of charities in the area over the last 50 years. Pat Carney, you're very welcome to the Posterity Podcast. Uh, Thank you, Nigel. Nice to meet you again. Pat, you're synonymous at this stage with Limerick, but you weren't a Limerick man as such. Talk to me about where you grew up. I grew up in Castlight and County Kerry, on a farm one mile outside the town, on the eastern side of Castle Island. And what? a man that grew up in our, my presence, but much older than me at the time, was the famous Con Houlihan. Yeah. Were you a big family? We were a big family. We still are. <laughs> but how many brothers and sisters? Uh, I had three brothers and six sisters. And what was it like growing up in Castle Island as a child? What are your early memories? Oh, it was a great town, a great business town with some great business operators in that town. Uh, great employment. Uh, we were farmers supplying the local creamery and everybody knew everybody. And everybody helped everybody. At that time in the farming community, you had what's known as a mehel. Like the, the thrasher came around once a year. The mehel of local farmers travelled with the thrasher to every farmyard to help out. The same sometimes with cotton turf. Some of the neighbours came together and we went back and gave them help. So it was a lovely lifestyle. What about community down there, Pat? When you when you talk about community in those old days, what do you think is different from then to now? Well, I suppose uh, the ability of people at that time to live together in peace and contentment and supportive of each other was great. Of course, the parish priest was the boss of everybody. And the 
with great teachers, I must say, great teachers in our local schools. We all benefited from their expertise and their knowledge. When you were a young fellow, what were your ambitions? Or did you have ambition? Or was there a natural way that you progressed in life? I mean, I heard in the, you know, that some people in those days might have been looking at priesthood, the guards, or you're becoming a teacher. But, you know, did, did you have any particular ambition when you were a young fellow to be no, something? ambition was to get out and make a living and get on in life. And I had mm. several jobs. What was your first job? My first job was the day after finishing my leaving certificate, I was working in the race office of Kerry County Council in the Ashby Memorial Hall in Tralee. In the race office? The race office. <laughs> <laughs> and the race office work at that time was writing out demand notes to because everybody paid rates, including every house paid rates at that time. And I was flying through these rate books. There was about 20 of us in a very large office. And I learned this was little facts of life as you go along. After my first week, when we were breaking up on the Friday evening to go home, two or three lovely elderly men called me over and said, slow down. You're writing too fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, the guards, how did it come about on Gardaí Corner? Just saw the advertisement, the paper for an examination, uh, uh, sent in my name and address, got a, an invitation to attend at a written examination in Tralee, hall full of all young men that had, there were no female girls at that time. So I did the exam, was called the following couple of weeks for a medical in Dublin and suddenly I'm in the guards. Garda Depot was in the Phoenix Park. It's still there across from the zoo. Right. And uh, so we were brought up there and we were trained there for six months. Then you were allocated uh, to your station and then you came back to following here for another month of more training. Where was your first posting? At Edward Street, next door. In Limerick? In Limerick, Edward Street. Just for listeners, we are recording here in um, just off Edward Street in the city centre. And Pat's. So you actually arrived in Limerick for the first time in your first post That's right. next door to here. And I'll tell you a funny story. Jack Welsh, Lord of Mercy, was in my class. He was from Donneril. He also came with me. I was to Edward Street. Jack was to William Street. And we got a great talk from uh, the advisors in the Garda Depot in Dublin that when you arrive at your station, whether by bus or by train, the local sergeant will meet you, convey you to your station, and show you your sleeping quarters. So Jack Welch and I had never been in Limerick at that time. Nobody had an opportunity of traveling that time. So we arrived here at the railway station just down the road here, and we came out on the platform outside where the steps are, and we looked left and we looked right, and there was no sign of any sign of a guard, of any sort. So we waited, uh, I suppose, 15 minutes, nothing happening with our cases. So we walked down to the taxis that were in front of the station at that time. I later found out there was the Conway family and became great friends with all the Conways. And I said to him, where's Edward Street? And he never said a word, he just pointed up. Edward Street with his right hand. And Jack Bishop says, William Street, he pointed left. And we said, which is the closest? And he pointed right. <laughs> <laughs> What was your first experience when you when you arrived in Limerick for the first time? I mean, aside from the from the guard a bit, we, we'll come back to that. But what was your first um, sense of Limerick? What kind of a town was it? It was a great market town. 
I wouldn't describe it as a city in mm. the known sense of a city at that time. It was a great market town, delightful people, everybody supportive, very friendly, and very, very helpful. Everybody knew, after a few weeks or months, we knew everybody around the street here. We knew all the people in the shops because we were out on beat all the time. You got to know everybody around town. And it was a very friendly community and self-satisfied community. Everybody had a sense of their own happiness. Mm. Even though the wages were poor, maybe. But one of the sites that uh, struck me, like China, come out of Edward Street Garden Station early in the morning. The droves of cyclists coming up the street going into this clothing factory here, Limerick Clothing Factory. Everybody had a bike. And they were mostly women, and they all cycled to work in the morning. Safely. And, yeah, safely. And a lot of those middle-aged women went to 8 o'clock mass down in some of the churches and then cycled up here to work. Looking at that, I mean, you were a guard. It was, you arrived. What year was it? Was it 19... 1961. I came here on the first Monday of July 1961, which is 60 years ago, last Next, July. Last July. Yeah. It is 60 years, isn't it? That's, so 60 years ago, you arrived in this city. And I'm just trying to think, when it came to crime, I mean, we think of crime now, not just in Limerick, but in most metropolitan cities in Ireland, in a certain way. And we think of how the, what the guards need to, to try and tackle. What sort of crime were you dealing with in Limerick? Crime was minor. Mm. It was really minor stuff. Uh, silly larcenies here and there. No violence of any sort, not like that. You knew all the black guards, as we call them, very quickly. And they responded to you. i give you a small example. When we went out on night duty, uh, from 10 o'clock, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., two of us on the beat, all around this area. Now, 2 o'clock in the morning would be rare for a man to appear on the street. But if I saw a man or a young fellow on the street, what's your name? What's your address? Go home. And I was a 19-year-old, tell him, and he'd run home. Do what you told him. Yeah. Did you have an authority? You had more of an authority, I suppose, oh, yes. than... Yeah. It was an authority. The uniform was respected, very much so. We were called a household rouse now and then. And we'd pacify everyone, and everyone finished up happy enough. Yeah. So it was, it, was, it was very, very little major crime. It wasn't there. Did you enjoy your years in the Guards? Oh, fantastic. I had great comrades, great people... And I had great support from all the people I made friends with around Limerick. They were great people. They supported us 100%. And I suppose it gave you an opportunity to network. I mean, you did. You would have met a hell of a lot of people, wouldn't you? It was great when I became an auctioneer. And that's where we're going to come. Before we get into the auctioneering thing, your wife Eileen, when did, when did you meet? We met at a dance in Cruises Hotel. So a fellow Kerry, a Kerry man meets a Kerry woman in Cruises Hotel in Limerick. Yes. Well, and now Eileen had worked for three years in New York. Okay. She worked with IBM and uh, she came home for a holiday. She stayed longer than she meant to stay at home on the holiday. And then she got a job with Laninit outside as a supervisor, big factory outside in Shannon, manufacturing ladies' garments. And she stayed around for a while. We bumped in. Then she was planning to go back to America and then... I changed her mind. You changed her mind. <laughs> and you were married when? 1966. 1966. Yeah. So that so, would have been just six years after you arrived, five or yes, six sir. years after arriving yeah. into Limerick. Jerry McCabe was her, her brother, Lotta Mercer and Jerry. He was my best man. 
and the following year, Jerry married his wife, Anne, and I was his best man. And Anne McCabe's father was Bill Kniff, who was a guard also here in Edward Street. And Anne McCabe's biggest tragedy was the murder of her husband, uh, Jerry. But she also had a tragedy with her dad, because Bill Kniff was the most abstemious man you could meet. He loved spending every Sunday being an empire in, in GA football matches. He was from Roscommon. And when he retired, the manager of the railway station down here asked him to do security. And he did security in a very efficient manner. And one day, two winers were blackguarding below, kicking up a row. Bill came out on the steps and said, come on, out of here, move. One of them turned around with a bottle, hit him over the head. He was unconscious for six weeks in Barrington's um, and passed away. Mm. There's a lot of tragedy there. Tell me, moving into auctioneering, 10 years after you arrived in Limerick, you decided, I'm going to move into a new world. How did that come about? Very simply, uh, I had a great life in the Gardaí Corner. I was three years running the sergeant's office here in Edward Street. I was sent temporary on to look after the superintendent's office in Paris Green, which is a lovely little spot. Uh, then I was hijacked over to the superintendent's office in Templemore Town. And then I was, uh, from there, I was sent to look after, on a temporary basis, the superintendent's office in Nina. And then I was brought back into Limerick and brought into the chief superintendent's office in William Street, the old guard station. So I had a great experience. And at one point, I was sent to the district court clerk's office to give him a handout. He couldn't keep up with the work of issuing summonses. So I had fantastic guard experience. Rounded experience. Rounded experience. Yeah. But in 1970, the North had erupted in 1969. There was murder and mayhem and shooting and killing and bombs and all that kind of stuff. And I was up on the, to go on the promotion list. Now, I worked with the chief below in his office, and I saw the ad for... Uh, Rooney's of Galway opening up a new office in Limerick. I checked him out. I talked with a friend of mine in business in Galway and he said, you won't go around there. They're very, very strong in Galway. So I applied. I was interviewed. Uh, then I got a call from Ray who said he had interviewed 29 people for the job. He was narrowing that down to six and he was calling the six up to his office in Galway for another interview. And then I was offered the job. And the job was quite simply, double the pay of a guard at the time and a brand new motor car. So I went to the chief and I said, what would you do? And he said, in three months time, there's a, a promotion interview. You will be promoted because he was the authority in these things, but you'll go straight to the border because all new promotions will be sent to the border to support the guards on the border. Now, I had Eileen at home and two kids, and I said, I don't fancy going to the border. <laughs> <laughs> Having been offered a job for twice so the day. I said to the chief, what would you do? He said, I'd take that job. <laughs> and I took it. And that's where you started. And every guy below, damn me from a height. Stupid, Egypt, you'll go up the line, you'll do well, all this kind of stuff. You're losing your pension, all this kind of stuff, yeah. And then a couple of years afterwards, some of the guys said, Christ, I should have gone as well. 
And Pat, when you went into that business, I mean, obviously Rooney's, so Rooney's was a company based in Galway oh, looking right. to start a, a Limerick branch. Right. Now, I'd have known, I'd have grown up, a good friend of mine, Mark DeCourcy, would have had obvious links to the DeCourcy family, yeah. Louis, yeah. Uh, Cyril. So. But there were, there were lots of auctioneers in Limerick. So you were entering into a world, where it was the competition must have been huge. I came into a bear pit. The opposition was huge. They were here, like William B. Fitt and Company were here since the 1800s. The Corsi was here since the 30s. Sexes were here since the early 1900s. They were all long established and well supported auctioneers. Did Rooney's, when they were looking at Limerick, at opening a branch in Limerick, having been a Galway company, were they seeing something that Limerick was obviously at a time when development was going to happen? Uh, things were happening, big time. For example, when I started, there were no photographs of any sort in the papers. They were all just descriptions of houses. We started doing photographs. Then everybody started doing photographs. There were no signs up in houses at that time, none at all. It all started around 1970. And Begley Burke had started before me a couple of months. There was, uh, they're both there now, Brian Begley and Connie Burke. And they were right across the road from my office. So we were the new kids on the block. The Limerick of that time, 1970, I mean, the University of Limerick hadn't, no. University of Limerick in Castle Troy no, certainly in wasn't a, in a NIHG, but it's, you know, it wasn't on the radar no, for, no. where it is now. But even the suburbs, I mean, the Castle Troys of this world, no. the Raheens, the Mungrets, it was a very compact little town, That's would I be right? It was a market town. Mm. It was compact. There, was no, there were no suburban estates of any sort, which means that all the upper floors of Georgia Limerick were mostly bedsits. And every young boy, a young girl who came to Limerick to work lived in those bedsits and they were quite happy with them. They had their own room, their bedroom, they had a little cooker, they had their toilet shower. That's all they wanted. And did that, I mean, obviously it did, but did your sense of that city at that time, I presume the living and the livability of the city created a dynamic throughout the day. You knew that it was a place that was lived in. Absolutely. And even at night time, there were five cinemas in town. They were packed every night. People came out in the street that spilled out around half ten to half eleven. They went to the pub for a pint. They went into the restaurants, the chippers. The town was buzzing. There'd be streams of people coming up uh, Davis Street here with chips in their hands, fish and chips, and up along here, the Banacola Western and Ross Bryan. There was activity all the time up to midnight. And look at the loss. We've no cinema in town. None. When you first got into the industry, I mean, obviously there was there was openings. There was in, there was a population increase. There was a there was a change in the way maybe Limerick was doing its business. I spoke to someone recently, and and they explained to me the idea of the clearings. And he said to me that at a time when the city was seen as there was a lot of slums within the city centre, that they were going to build these out of town residential developments to house people who they might have considered them. But was there a sense that there was a gentrification going on in Limerick? Well, there always was up to the time I came. It started dissipating at that point. But you had the, the big traders in Limerick. And their big, I suppose, uh, achievement was they had a holiday house in Kilkee. And I think Richard Harris mentioned that somewhere in an interview. That the first thing he did after finding money in his film career was to buy a house in Kilkee to show he had a right. Status. Yeah, status. 
What about the developments then? You know, you the likes of Dura Doyle, you'd have had Raheen, we're, we're now seeing Mungret, Castle Troy, uh, Davin. You would have seen some of this starting to blossom. And did you ever get a sense that maybe what we were doing was we were causing what I would call now sprawl as opposed to focusing on density? It was, it became sprawl. It did. Take, for example, South Hill. The South Hill land, I walked that land. It was the the best farmland in Ireland, beautiful farmland up there because of South Hill House, that's a huge uh, land bank up there. And I think not, not enough proper thinking went into the building of that estate. Unfortunately, it left them high and dry without any facilities, which was a shame because it was a lovely part of town and still is a great suburb of parts of town. But McInerney's arrived on the scene. They started building houses in Mary Keefe outside. Then they moved to Cahardabin. They were big developers, the McInerney brothers. Uh, Sean Handley and uh, uh, Sean Handley uh, started building with Dom Dineen. They started Cobley House, house outside in Cobley. Then they went their separate ways and did separate uh, buildings uh, around town. Fantastic. They were great operators, both of them. Uh, Bobby Parks arrived in the scene. And he started all, all the Tipperary Road, Grandville Park, Norwood Park, all those places. They were all Bobby Parks. And Greenfields had been just completed when I came to town. Uh, Derek O'Malley was involved in that. And uh, they started growing suburbs then. They started moving out. But uh, the slow pace, I suppose, was curtailed by the lack of proper sewage. So sewage facilities had to be put in to cater for those estates. When we look now and we think about, you know, obviously rail certainly is, it's not an Irish thing anyway, but when we look at, you know, the road infrastructure, when we look at the, the services, when we look at the connectivity to the city centre that all of these places had, do you, do you ever look back and think that there was mistakes made by everybody who were involved in that game at the time, you know, without thinking, or was, that, was it just that because population was growing, it was the accepted thing to do? It was the accepted thing to, first of all, the developer had to make money, and it was the accepted thing to get land at the best possible price you could, and then to get the best possible price for the houses you built. But I must say, a lot of the pioneering builders were decent people. They built decent houses. They gave value for the money as well, and they gave people what they wanted. So you had a choice of prices and values in different suburbs. And whatever your pocket could afford, then you went for that. Now, take for example, uh, how things have whooshed up into the stratosphere. Uh, Eileen and I got married in 1966. We were lucky enough to be able to buy a house in Irish estates in Abbey Avenue and Corbley, which is a beautiful suburb with all the open lawns in front, kind of an American design. Mm. I bought that house for 2400 Yeah. I moved out to Castle Troy a year and a half afterwards, and I sold the house and made a massive profit. I sold it for 2700 <laughs> The city centre, something that's close to my heart, and people will know me for, you know, banging on all the time about... Yeah. And, and my city, by the way, I would describe it as being from sort of Dolan's right up to the end of the handball alley in St. Mary's Park, and maybe from the Curragour pub up to the top of Wickham Street. That's where I see my city centre as being, right. okay? okay? When did you start to notice that maybe the city was 
potentially being undermined a little bit by that external. When, when did it start to get a sense that it was losing the character that it had from a population perspective? Well, I suppose I was involved in some of that myself at the Crescent Shopping Centre. Crescent Shopping Centre opened in November this month in 1973, almost 50 years ago. Uh, that took five years to convince people to shop in the shopping centre. They weren't used to it. They still came into town. But the shopping centre wooed them away from a lot of the shops in town. To the extent that if you look at the population of North Cork, North Kerry and West Limerick, all coming in towards the Crescent Shopping Centre, free car parking, plenty of shops in there and no need to go into town. And I don't think you can be blamed for, I mean, there was a trend at the time that the shopping mall was coming into its own. And and when there's demand and when there's demand for big retailers to be out of town, you're perfectly entitled to go that way. But then with that must have come a new fear that the city centre might need to change. And and are we we possibly guilty in Limerick of not realising that? And this is, when was the Crescent developed? Would I be right? 73. 73. So even at that time, we should have been acknowledging that possibly retail is going to change in its its way and we need a rethink. And suppose, uh, like, there was one retailer in town, he's dead now a lot to miss him, and he had a beautiful shop premises. And I chased him to try and get him in as a tenant out there to open his second shop in the Crescent. And I must have pestered him so much, he said to me one day, go away, boy. Too far out, nobody will ever go out there. And that was the thinking in the city centre. And look what happened. Look what happened, yeah. But then uh, the the Crescent Shopping Centre was 112,000 square feet, a lot of shops. And uh, shops to suit everyone's needs. Whereas the city centre was handicapped with Georgian structure, Georgian smaller shops, and we stuck with that. A very limited footprint. Very limited, yeah. yeah. Um, Culturally, though, as well, we over time, as you mentioned earlier, we had a number of cinemas. We had that wonderful Theatre Royal right in the heart of town. The first time I ever stepped on stage was in the Crescent Hall, which, okay, was only uh, part of the old Crescent College. But I remember being in Oliver with the the Sicilians. I saw you performing up there. Yeah, but my memory of that, 1991. So what are we talking? Um, 30 years ago was my first time on stage there. And I remember you'd perform for two weeks. Every night would be sold out. You'd buy your tickets down in Savins. There was an excitement and a buzz around town just for that Sicilian show, that one Sicilian show. But then I'm thinking, I missed the days of the Savoy. I didn't get to see the old Savoy Theatre, but I've heard so much about those old cinemas and those old theatres and the sense of community that went with that. When did it go wrong? The Savoy Theatre should never have been demolished. It was the most magnificent theatre seating about 1,500 people, the circle overhead, the ground floor, magnificent platform, magnificent stage. I saw many shows there, and you had a restaurant then outside called the Talk of the Town. If a boyfriend was taken out, a girlfriend, and could afford the price of the cinema tickets and afford bringing her into the Talk of the Town, it was a great night out. The Talk of the Town was a beautiful uh, attraction after you came out of the films. And that beautiful cinema should never have been demolished. Why was it demolished? I don't know. And the same at Cruises Hotel, 200 years old, should never have been demolished. They could have put the cruises behind it, they could have cleaned out the ground floor, and people could have walked through 
would keep the hotel overhead. And as a businessman in the city centre, I mean, did you guys ever have, in, as businessmen in the auctioneering world, did you ever have an influence in terms of the planning that was, the decisions that were being made? Or were you, did you go with it or did you ever stand up and go, look guys, we need to possibly keep the heart in this city too? I, I think we fell down there that we didn't uh, organise ourselves properly to do that. But take, I give you the other side of that now, uh, Nigel. I was president of the Chamber of Commerce in 1998. I was the lucky president. We got Bill Clinton to come to Limerick. Yeah. And the rates were going up again. And all the shopkeepers down here had justification to object vocally big time. And I went down to meet every shopkeeper around personally at that time. I said, look, we call a meeting with City Hall at that time, many people didn't go to City Hall for meetings. So I went to the city manager and I said, everyone is irate over the increase in the rates. Can you give us a meeting? And I'll bring down all the shopkeepers and the rate pairs of the city for this meeting. And he did, he came back and he said, I'll arrange a meeting. Tuesday night, sorry, Tuesday evening, six o'clock, I'll have had my heads of services here to meet you and your ratepayers, and we'll discuss it. I went around personally with a letter and invitation to every shopkeeper in Limerick. I said, six o'clock, choose to be down there. I got onto the meeting ahead of the time. The city manager was there with his heads of services. He's seven or eight across the top table. Six shopkeepers turned up. Six out of the city. And the city manager turned to me and says, where are your ratepayers? It's there was lack of... Togetherness, I suppose. Would that Sorry? be the, a lack of togetherness? A lack was, of yeah. I'd say what happened that in the evening, they all finished work at six o'clock, got into their cars and went home. So that sense of let's fight together wasn't there at that time. Would you see that as an apathy or just a sense that they were never going to get their way? No, I don't think so. I didn't, don't think, I didn't think they thought it through to that extent at all. I think they were lost in the old business methods that applied in the city centre and they probably thought it would keep going forever. And sadly, it hasn't. So you're saying that possibly they just didn't see that the trends were changing and therefore no, they had to I move at the times. And it's really honest. interesting that you say that because I get a sense at the moment that in Limerick, when we're looking at a city that really has to keep up with itself, it really has to keep up with the likes of Galway. I'm, you know, you're seeing a lot of stuff coming out about Kilkenny now, Waterford, yeah. Cork being the second city. You know, Limerick is at risk of falling behind even more with, to the to the to the extent that other cities and other towns might overtake us in Ireland as being seen destinations. And post-COVID, we have an opportunity to attract people from Dublin who are paying fortunes for rents and fortunes for houses Mm -hmm. to come back and base themselves here. But I think only if we get the planning right now, and that means everybody in Limerick, from shopkeepers to hoteliers to people that have a vested interest in the city, understanding that things have got to change in terms of trends, how people move about, how people live, to get that right. And do you think that we are ready for that in Limerick today? Two things are on the horizon. The Opera Centre. I spent four years of my life assembling that site. I dealt with about 40 different uh, owners, leaseholders, tenants, etc., 
to get a, a clear site there for the developer. And it's a pity the way things worked out, unfortunately, because that would have been built. You were talking about the Sunil Sharma, Sharma. Um, project that was on the cards prior to um, the current situation. It is, yeah. Just on that, with the, our current opera site, we've seen it go on to site. We have very limited residential within it in its current guise. I don't agree with There should be more accommodation there to have people domiciled in the city and to create a lively nightlife. Why do you think that they are so focused on the commercial, um, the commercial office space concept and around and, and sort of they seem to me to be taking their eyes off the ball. I mean, they're building Mungret and they're putting the opera site in. It's the same company, Limerick Twenty Thirty, and it's almost saying this to me: yeah. work in town, live in Mungret, yeah. fill up the roads with your cars while you're doing so. There should be more residential content in there. And the university should proceed with residential content as content on the old Duns uh, shop down in Sansfield Street. That's sitting there decaying as well. But the Opera Centre like has decayed for the last 12 years, I think, and nothing happened. Now, there's something wrong with that uh, being allowed to happen because there's no city anywhere in Ireland or any country that would allow a whole block of the city centre to lie dormant there for so many years. That should have been attacked many years ago. And there should be more residential content in there. We also have the opportunity, back to my opening remarks, a cinema. A large cinema entertainment complex in there would fill the city centre every night. People coming out to the cinema at 11 o'clock. That's scattered out to the restaurants, the pubs, whatever's going on. We should have more activity down there. Mixed use is what you're talking about. Mixed use and and people friendly activity. Because you know when I do look at the moment and I'm I'm looking at the plans that we have and you know opera site being one of the largest within the city centre. You know you had the hanging gardens building. It was you know already half built, so it was completed. You can argue whether or not that's been a success in terms of the footfall it's added to the city centre. We'll park that one, but you then have Cleves across the river. And, you know, I was expecting a master plan this year for Cleves, hopefully, and I was hoping to see a huge big vision coming out that might give you some bit of hope. And they nailed five boards to the walls of the outside of Cleves. Just five little picture-y boards that gave a mood of what they're thinking. And to me, if that's their launch, I, I really worry because we need to get our act together on this stuff. Cleves is a magnificent site. It has been dormant there for a long time as well. Uh, what people don't know, a small little story. At the top of Cleves site, there's a magnificent spring well, spring water. We could bottle Limerick water out of that well. A small thing. There's a retirement idea for you, Pat, when <laughs> Cleves gets built. <laughs> Pat's spring water. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you get up and go. <laughs> <laughs> Pat. But uh, talking yeah. about Cleves, I prepared plans back in 2006 across the road, going down Barrington's Pier. And what could be done in Barrington's Pier is enormous. And I just passed across you a little plan shown what could be put into it. And our plans were, there were force involved in that presentation, were high-rise apartments, blocks of apartments, residential units, office blocks, uh, a, a, a centre or a hub for international language uh, t- teaching and uh, bring people into Shannon. 
and uh, a hub there as well for reconciliation. If there are companies in Europe that have to sort out something, bring them here. Interpreters, world-class language centre down there. A marina and Barrington Spear itself here will be 32 floors high. And, you know, it's vision like this. Now, I can, I'm looking at this immediately. I can see people who would be going, oh, don't touch that part of the land. That's where we walk and all of that. But what, I think what you're getting at here is that you created a vision for the Barrington's Pier area right down to Condell Road. And what year was this, Pat? 2006. 2006. I remember meeting Pat Carney, or Pat, sorry, Ty Carney, yes. a number of years back. And Ty brought me into the Chamber of Commerce offices and showed me a vision that he had created for O'Connell Street, yes, where I, he'd I, got I the drawings, and he'd got this hand artist to come. And yeah. I would argue that yeah. the O'Connell Street of Ty Carney's vision from 25 years ago overtakes the ambition that we have for O'Connell yeah, Street that was today. So there was another person, and I had the drawings. And I suppose what I'm getting to here is that is there a thing in Limerick that people who bring big visionary ideas to the table? get told, particularly for the city centre, Ed Walsh managed to achieve something incredible out in UL. Yeah. But when it comes to the city centre, is there a sense that just, we just, we're not at that level? Or, or is there a lack of ambition in our leadership? There probably is. There's also a lack of discipline around the city. Small things, uh, like uh, reprimanding a child at home, small things that would improve the, the quality of our life in the city centre. If I was in charge in the morning, First of all, I'd appoint a caretaker, a mammy or a daddy, to look after Limerick every day. This person, male or female, would come up from City Hall every morning, walk every street, be on his phone, back to City Hall. There's rubbish thrown around William Street. Get someone up here straight away. Get all these beggars off the street. They're sitting there up against rubbish bins. For a person coming to Limerick for the first visit, that's an appalling picture to take home. Those beggars sitting along the street down there. I raised that many times over the years. I was told by City Hall it's the guards' problem. I was told by the guards it's not their problem. Surely somebody, an authority, can get those beggars. I'm sorry for them. They shouldn't be there. The old dunce stores below fell asleep in the doorway there in the morning time. Blankets over them. What an image for the first visit to Limerick for some people. What about the fact that, you know, when we look at some of those people and, you know, there are there's homelessness within every city, I suppose, but we've probably not been very good to some of our own in terms of how we've treated them, particularly when we look at the regeneration of the city, you know, and, and possibly those people that we're referring to there are probably, um, they're victims of that on, on a level. So I suppose, you know, as a city, we've, we've, we haven't really done our people justice, have we? Well, that's the authority I'm talking about. There should be an authority to get things done, get out and make things happen, clean up the city in the sense of getting people off the, sitting on the footpad, uh, begging. Wrong image for the city. Where are we going? We've gone back to the old days when people had to beg because there was no social welfare for them. 
we don't have to do it anymore. Did the did the fact that there was a city and a county council at the time? I mean, the mer- I want to I want to get your thoughts on the merging. I presume city and county councils. You were probably dealing with both. both yeah. You watched the county suburban area probably grow yeah. m- in a much nicer way than the city did. How to, to what extent did having two local or two local authorities, yeah, um, have an effect on the city centre particularly? No, I don't think it helped at all. It was like a husband and wife who don't talk to each other. And uh, it didn't help out at all at the time, yeah. And there was a certain competition between them as well. So it was great that they came together into one authority. And as an auctioneer, did you know, would you have seen that? Would you have seen, like, probably a a richer county council laughing at the city for its its lack of, possibly lack of ambition, but certainly lack of money? Well, one small example, I suppose, is outside in the parkway. Uh, where you have this uh, new development that was planned out there. The planning was granted by the council. It was objected to by the city. And what's, what's going on? What is your finest achievement, do you think, in business over the last 50 years, particularly in, in Rooney's? What's your finest? I suppose every, <laughs> every success was a success in itself. Like I've been involved in lots of things and I've been blessed with the people around me as well. Uh, uh, take, for example, uh, 1998, President Clinton came to Limerick. I was in a lucky position of being President of the Chamber. We had an input into that, and we were delighted with it. Now, the Chamber of Commerce has great strength in America. They're very active over there. And we're delighted to welcome you here. We have everybody lined up to greet President Clinton when he comes. We have the fire chiefs on standby. The police chief is standby, the city manager is standby, and uh, they said, thank you very much, we're going to have a meeting. They went away for a meeting into an office, we didn't leave. So they came out and walked out, oh, hello, you're still here. <laughs> we, are, yeah. <laughs> we charmed them, I can say. <laughs> and you successfully managed to get them to land. We got them to come here, yeah. And we were delighted with that, because it was a great day for Limerick, yeah. You, now, you mentioned it earlier on, but talk to me about June 1996, Detective Garda Jerry McCabe. Oh, yeah, the most horrible. Where were you the day that you heard that? Uh, I was just getting ready to leave the house after my breakfast to come into work. Because Jerry was shot around 7 o'clock. And who told you? Uh, oh, we got a call straight away from the guards. Straight away, yeah. I don't want to go into too much, Pat, but I mean, it, you played a huge role in... In terms of help, I mean, he was your best man. You were his best man. Correct, yeah. And but after the event, you you really were the backbone of for Anne and the family. The and and not only that, we built our four houses where we are outside the four little bungalows. We built those together. Uh, I spotted a field for sale there. There was a narrow road where you grew up as well. Quite a narrow road coming down there, and I bought the fields. And then I put out a notice in the garden station that I had a field that could accommodate four houses, and who would join me? Jerry McCabe was number one, he came living next door. Dick Mitchell was next, and Pat O'Leary was next. Unfortunately... All members of the guards. All members of the guards. We built those four houses together. We did all the donkey work ourselves uh, with shovels and spades and picks and all that kind of stuff. And uh, Jerry was murdered, Dick has died, and Pat has died. It hurt you, didn't it? Absolutely, it was awful. It was dreadful. It, um, uh, Jerry's father never got over it, killed him, never got over it, and uh, was very resolute 
she very strong, uh, still strong today, but it was terrible for the whole family. Ross was the youngest of the family. He was doing his intermediate uh, exam at the time. Stacy was next. She was doing the living cert that day. John was a guard stationed in Monaghan, and he was out on early patrol when he got the call. I was just going to say, in, in terms of forgiveness, it's a, it's a weird word, forgiveness. Do you ever find a moment where you could feel that you can forgive for what happened that no. day? Those people do not deserve forgiveness. They're brutal. Brutal. To stand outside that car with Jerry McCabe and Ben O'Sullivan, and the man who fired the shots knew those two men individually over a long period of time. So when he stood there with his bandicab on him, he knew Ben Jolly, and he blazed him with bullets. And Ben O'Sullivan gave evidence in the trial that he stopped and he fired again. Firing again is intent to kill. That's murder, that's 40 years in jail. Didn't work out that way. As we move to a, a time when it's looking more and more likely that we'll see Sinn Féin in government, is it something that you... Well, I turned that around a small bit, uh, Nigel. They say they have 35% support. That means they have 65% against them. Look at it that way. Depends on which end of the telescope you're looking at. That 65% will be very vocal in their opposition to Sinn Féin when it comes to the next election. And the cotton joke, as you know yourself, is... When a member of Sinn Féin has been interviewed, yes, uh, what's the question? They give yes to everything, unfortunately. Final question. It's the Posterity Podcast. I'm hoping you're going to be around for many a year. I'm still turning up, Nigel. I'm institutionalised to go to work every day. Every day. <laughs> so, question for you. Long after you're gone, the legacy that you leave and, and things that could be done today that would leave a legacy for your grandkids and your great-grandkids. What do you think we could do in Limerick to really, really shape a positive future for the people coming after us? Well, first of all, we need to show that we have authority over our city. And we don't seem to have that impression at the moment. I'll give you another uh, uh, thing that's with me for years. I tried for years to get a garden box below at Debenhams, Rose's stores there. And I spoke with the guards, who were very helpful, and I spoke with City Hall, and I spoke with everyone, and the manager at that time of Rochester Stores was enamored of the idea, and he says, I'll pay for the box. I'll pay to put the box outside the outdoor to the side, under the canopy. And my idea was there'll be a guard there on duty every day from 10 a.m., uh, sorry, from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Now, take the advantages of that. He would have communication with all his colleagues, wherever they are, squad cars, motorbikes, whatever. If you saw something uh, tonight happening down your way, something criminal happening, you'll forget about it tomorrow. But if you're walking up O'Connor Street and there's a gather box, you'll go up and say, I saw this last night. He will collect more information and more help from the public and reassure the public that we are here at all times. If something happens in the street today, come down here. It would create authority around the city. And I vaguely remember the arguments against you at the time on that one. And one was that, oh, it sends out a bad signal that there's crime in Limerick. And I mean, I thought found that bonkers because 
every city has crime, but if you can deal with crime by providing a community person who people get to know in the middle of the city, yeah. you know, you're going to solve a lot of problems with that. And all people coming to town will feel reassured. There's a guard down there. You know, we can run down and tell him. And that should be implemented. It gives you authority over the city. Going back to my thing about a father or a mother look after the city, walk the streets all day long, ring down what's happening. Uh, this needs cleaning up. This needs attention. Uh, the lights aren't working on such a street. We need a caretaker who would look after our city every day, report to City Hall and say, get things done the following day. But that's not happening either. Have you had a happy life? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I'm a workaholic, and I admit that, and I enjoy it. I like to be working on something all the time. Well, look, I hope that you're part of this city for many more years because you've done great work, and I know that we didn't even get to touch on some of the charity stuff, but, I mean, people that know you know you've been involved in so many different things. And, Pat, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on the Posterity Podcast, and um, look forward to seeing some of what you've um, put on the table here this evening possibly coming to fruition in the coming years so thank, thank you, you so Nigel. much a pleasure to be here thank you thank you've been listening to the posterity podcast with me nigel dugdale produced by the limerick post in association with limerick city community radio theme tune composed by david blake and performed by the brad pitt light orchestra if you want to get in touch with me or suggest any future guests you can contact me directly on twitter at limerick city biz or you can contact the limerick post at limerick post Thank you.